Hello, and welcome to At the Forefront FinTech Conversations. I'm Kathy Dowd, a senior consultant at Forefront Communications. We are a specialized marketing and public relations firm focused on capital markets and institutional fintech sectors. Today, we are deviating from our typical format to talk to Allison Singer, who is co-founder and president of the Autism Science Foundation. I first learned about ASF two years ago when I attended Wall Street Rides Far, an event that I think many of our listeners are familiar with. Autism is an extremely prevalent issue in the United States. And today, one in 54 kids are diagnosed with autism every year. ASF is a great charity that you'll hear more about that supports families and researchers and 89 cents of every dollar that's donated goes directly to helping those groups. You can learn more at www.autismsciencefoundation.org. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Allison Singer, president and co-founder of the Autism Science Foundation. Hi, Allison. Hi, Kathy. We are very happy you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you. I'm hoping you can start by telling us some basic information about ASF. What is the Autism Science Foundation and what is your core mission? Our mission is to improve the lives of people with autism. Very simple. The way we do that is by funding research and by creating family education events so that the output of that research gets into the hands of the people who need it. So we fund research across the board. Our goal is to understand the causes of autism and to then use that understanding of the underlying biology to develop treatments for autism that are biologically sound. It's our goal to encourage all families who are raising children with autism to use evidence-based interventions. And one way we do that is by producing educational events like our annual Days of Learning, where we bring top scientists from all over the country and all over the world to share their latest scientific findings with families who are raising children with autism. And also through our webinar programs, we have webinars to share science. And after the pandemic hit, we started to produce webinars to help our families understand how they can pivot, how they can respond. So for example, how to use principles of applied behavior analysis to get their child to wear a mask, how they can prepare their child for special education delivered via Zoom for our adults with autism. We created webinars on how to work from home. I mean, that was a new experience for a lot of our families. So what we try to do is really focus on the science and encouraging people to use the science and incorporate the science into their lives, but also to be responsive to what our families need and ask us for and to provide that information for them. You have a lot of personal affiliation with autism through your family. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit and let us know why and how that prompted you to want to found ASF about a dozen years ago. Well, my daughter Jody was diagnosed with autism when she was about two years old. But even at that point, I was not a stranger to autism because my older brother, Stephen, had been diagnosed with autism back in the 1960s. And back in the 60s, we knew very little about autism. People thought that autism was the result of bad parenting. In fact, my mother was called a refrigerator mother 
and was told that she was too cold to be a good mother and that the best thing she could do for my brother would be to send him away and try harder with her other kids. So of course, now we know that that's ridiculous. We know that the parents of kids with autism are among the most loving and compassionate people you will ever meet in your life. And we know that autism is a genetic disorder. But even that we didn't know when I was getting pregnant with my daughter. I actually asked my OB whether I told her that my, I had an older brother with autism and I said, could it be genetic? And she said, no, it's not a genetic disorder. Well, now we know because of the research that's been funded that autism is a genetic disorder. And we have identified several of the genes that are responsible for causing autism. And we're working to develop treatments to target the proteins that those genes disrupt. So I was motivated to found the Autism Science Foundation because of my daughter and because of the other families that I met along my journey, her journey, our entire family's journey. And as I said, our goal is to fund as much good science as we possibly can and get that science into the hands of the people who need it. Thank you for sharing your personal journey with us. I also want to try to define autism for some listeners who may be a little foggy about what it is. We hear about the autism spectrum and we hear about people with Asperger's and hear about people in the media. There's a Netflix show, Love on the Spectrum. There's Sheldon Cooper on The Big Bang Theory. There's The Good Doctor, some of these characters who kind of seem to have autism, but also are very high functioning. Can you sort of define autism and the range of the spectrum for us? The autism that you see portrayed in the media and on television is one type of very high-functioning autism. My daughter, for example, is not going to be a scientist. She is not going to get a job as a surgeon, like you see on The Good Doctor. She is going to consume medical services, not provide them. In many ways, that portrayal of autism has done a disservice to families who are raising children with profound autism. What happened a few years ago was that the definition of autism was changed and the diagnostic labels were changed. So whereas we used to have more descriptive labels like autism, classic autism, pervasive developmental disorder, and Asperger's that defined the different levels of functioning, in the DSM-5, Everyone was lumped together and everyone was diagnosed autism spectrum disorder. And unfortunately, that that term now does not give anyone information about level of functioning. So, for example, you can be diagnosed autism spectrum disorder if you have genius level IQ or if you have IQ level below 50, which is severe intellectual disability. You can be diagnosed autism spectrum disorder if you have no language or if you have intact language. You can be diagnosed autism spectrum disorder if you graduate from Harvard Law School or if you, as my daughter did, leave high school with a certificate of attendance. So the spectrum has become so broad and the term autism has become so broad that it's almost meaningless at this point. We have to move back to splitting the spectrum into more descriptive and useful labels, including profound autism for those on the more severely affected end of the spectrum and bring back the term Asperger's to describe those who are on the higher functioning end of the spectrum. When you use those terms, they provide useful information to people. You know, if I say my daughter has autism, they have no idea whether she is Sheldon Cooper or whether, you know, she has intellectual disability. 
it's important for us to have those descriptive and meaningful labels. And ASF was actually instrumental in helping to debut the term profound autism, and you're part of a movement to try to educate people about it. Is that right? Yeah. I am a member of the Lancet Commission on Autism, and the Lancet will be publishing a special issue on autism later this year in which they will support the idea of creating these more specific labels, including profound autism. You know, we talked a little bit about our our day of learning. Dr. Kathy Lord at UCLA, who chaired the Lancet Commission on Autism, actually presented that information at our last day of learning. Obviously, you're called the Autism Science Foundation. Science is literally your middle name. And clearly, there's also a lot more to be known about science, and there's a lot of critical research that still needs to happen. I know a core part of your mission is funding researchers who are committed to autism science. Can you talk a little bit about how donations to ASF support autism research that can really make a positive difference in people's lives? Well, when we looked at the autism research landscape, we really looked at where are the holes, right? What's necessary? The The National Institute of Health funds some autism research, and there are some other organizations that are funding research. But what what's not happening, what was canceled at the NIH, was funding for early career researchers. So at the NIH, you have to be a very, very far along in your career, really, to be eligible for any funding. And That was not leaving us with a a pipeline of talented and smart trainees and younger scientists. And frankly, it's often the younger scientists who have the novel ideas of really an interesting and unique way to look at a, a question in science. And so our focus has been to fund earlier career researchers. So we fund students who are pursuing their doctorate. We fund postdoctoral fellowships. And then we also realized that we wanted to fund students even earlier to get them excited about autism research and pair them up with more seasoned mentors so that they would learn about autism research. So we began funding undergraduate summer research fellowships where we pair aspiring undergraduates with very experienced, well-funded mentors and give them that experience. And, And that's been very successful. Almost all of those undergraduates that we fund stay in autism research and have gone on to really make important discoveries. Do you have examples over the years, and you don't have to talk in a huge amount of specificity, of work that ASF has funded, research that has made a measurable positive difference in the lives of people with autism and their families? Well, one of the areas that I think is is most easily explained to people who may have less familiarity with autism is the work that's come out of the Baby Siblings Research Consortium. We know that the younger siblings of children with autism are more likely to be diagnosed with autism than children in the in the general population. So that was an enriched pool for us. So the Baby Siblings Research Consortium studies the younger siblings of people with autism. And that has been incredibly fruitful in terms of identifying new early warning signs of autism. And the reason that's so important is because the earlier children are diagnosed and the sooner they can start to receive evidence-based early intervention, the better their prognosis. The sooner we can begin treatment, the more skills the child will acquire. So early intervention is still really the best weapon we have against autism. So the work done 
by the Baby Siblings Research Consortium has been incredibly important and very valuable for families. A lot of our podcast listeners are familiar with the Autism Science Foundation through Wall Street Rides Far. For those who are not so aware of Wall Street Rides Far, maybe have only vaguely heard of it, can you describe what the event is? Oh my gosh, the Wall Street Rides Far is probably my favorite day of the year. There really are not that many opportunities for our families to go out and have fun, be together as a family in a compassionate environment. It's a great opportunity for families of kids with autism and also for the Wall Street community to come together and just have a great, fun day for our families who participate in the 5K walk. As I said, it's a chance for them to be together as a family with no judgment. And for the members of the Wall Street community who participate in form teams, I think for them, it's just a great day to be outside, be with their colleagues. And it's a chance for them you know, Wall Street is so competitive and these are companies that are competing with each other day in and day out and and fighting for business. But on this day, they all come together to support the cause of autism research and to support our families with autism. And I think it's been a very rewarding day for everyone who participates, not just because they complete an incredibly long and beautiful ride, but also because they know that the funds they're raising are so critical for our families. For some of our listeners who may be new parents, who are thinking about becoming parents, who are maybe new grandparents, What are some of the early warning signs of autism? You know, I'm so glad you asked that because so often we say, learn the signs, learn the signs, but then we don't actually talk about the signs. So let me talk a little bit about things that I think every parent should be able to see in their children. You know, we all learn the physical milestones, right? We learn when a baby should roll over, when a baby should pull up, when they should walk. It's just as important to understand the language milestones and the emotional milestones and act early if you see a delay there. So even by two months of age, two months, babies should be responding to loud noises, They should be able to watch things as they move, and they should be smiling at people. By about six months, babies should be reaching for things, grabbing them. They should be showing affection to caregivers. They should be responding to sounds, and they should be making sort of vowel sounds, ah, 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 ee, ee. They should also be laughing or squealing when something makes them happy. And then by nine months, babies should respond to their own name. And this is often the sign that parents identify first. They'll say, I thought my child might be deaf because I called his name over and over and he didn't respond. And this is something that happened with my daughter. I would call her name, nothing. But I knew she wasn't deaf because if I turned Sesame Street on and she heard Elmo, she'd come running. So I knew it couldn't be a hearing issue. But Babies should turn when you call their name by the time they're nine months old. And then by the time they're one year old, they should be pointing to things in an effort to draw your attention to them, like they should point to an airplane in the sky or to a dog walking on the street. They should wave bye-bye. They should shake their head, yes or no. We talk about gesturing. Those are examples of gesturing. And also, if they see you hide something, they should look for it. They should be showing that kind of curiosity and understanding of what you're doing. 
by 18 months, pediatricians should be doing developmental screening, but by 18 months, babies should be imitating actions that adults take. They should understand what common objects are used for, like a cup or a spoon. By 18 months, babies should have, I'd say, six or seven words, and they should be gaining new words very regularly. And then by two years of age, we can really make a good diagnosis at this point by two years of age, but signs for families to look for. By two years of age, we, we say two-word phrases by two. They should be using two words together like, um, like mama up or want juice or something like that. And, and they should be able to follow simple instructions that you give them, like pick up truck or pick up the truck. And they should also be showing interest in other children by the time that they're, they're two years old. These are just some of the early warning signs. There's a much more complete list of early warning signs and things to look out for on our website. What should parents do, family members do, if they're seeing some of these early warning signs in very young children? What are the steps they should take? We always say, learn the signs, act early. If you suspect that your child may have a developmental delay or, or your grandchild, take action. Don't wait. Talk to your pediatrician. Ask for a developmental screen. If you still have concerns, ask for a referral either to a developmental pediatrician or a child psychiatrist. Go to our website and learn more about, about the warning signs. Normally, parents have a very good gut instinct for this. So sometimes parents have to push on their pediatrician a little bit. And often, you know, often it's not a diagnosis of autism. It can be a language disorder, language delay, or some other type of, of learning disability. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the child's going to be diagnosed with autism. But if you suspect a developmental delay, and if the child has a delay, you want that child to start receiving early intervention services as soon as possible. So again, I think the Wall Street community listening to this will, will do a great job at this. They all tend to be type A's and very assertive, but be confident in what you see and what you feel and push a little bit on the medical community. And we talked a little bit earlier about the autism spectrum, and clearly there's many people who have profound autism and conditions where they maybe can't be part of the workforce, but there may be obviously some people who can. I'm thinking if there are some listeners in the Wall Street community or otherwise here, how can they be more inclusive to try to include people with autism as part of their team? Well, I would argue that all people with autism have the ability to work and be productive. So my daughter, for example, as I said, she has profound autism, but she lives in a community in the Catskills where she raises animals. So she's in a, she's a goat farmer. She has loved animals since she was a small child. When we were doing applied behavior analysis program at home with her and she was working for her rewards, her reward was always go to Petco and see the puppies. This is a person who has loved animals and now raising animals is, is her vocation. But I know what you're getting at. I think on Wall Street particularly, there are lots of great job opportunities for people who are at the higher functioning end of the spectrum. And it's an issue of not just finding a job for a person with autism, but finding the right job. Like Jody has found the right job. And I think there are many individuals with autism who are very good with numbers, who have a real facility with numbers, who I think would be wonderful in the Wall Street world. But there are definitely things that employers can do 
to help people with autism be successful. For example, they could provide mentors on site who could provide some individualized support. They could work to help educate the general population in the company about autism. It's not just a situation where we want to train the person who has autism to get along at the company. We also want to train everyone at the company to understand what autism is so that if there needs to be any sort of modification of the environment, like uh, less harsh lighting or reduced sound, that people will understand why that's happening and why it's necessary. And then finally, I would say if you're managing someone who has an autism spectrum disorder, it's usually helpful to very clearly explain the rules, explain the procedures, explain the policies, explain your expectations. I mean, frankly, that's those are rules of good management, but I think it's particularly important when you are supervising a person with autism spectrum disorder. You mentioned the pandemic and how it impacted last year's Wall Street Rides Far. Obviously, the pandemic upended all of our lives this past year, but I feel like autism families were hit particularly hard. Can you talk about how the pandemic impacted autism families and how ASF stepped up to support them? Well, I definitely think that our families have been disproportionately affected. I think all families are suffering. But when you think about having a disorder that the hallmark of which is rigidity and sameness, all of a sudden the world is upside down and nothing is the same. So people with autism really thrive when they have very clear routines. And all of a sudden those routines were gone. So that's been very challenging. Also, you know, virtual education has been difficult for all students, but particularly for students who are in special education, who are used to having a one-to-one aid or specialized instruction from special education teachers who now had to receive those, those services over Zoom. And also the therapies that our children require, like physical therapy, occupational therapy, it's almost impossible to provide those services over Zoom. My daughter is very profoundly affected by her autism. She's in a residential center in the Catskills. She lives there and she works there. And that site was in lockdown for 17 weeks. And we weren't able to visit her. Normally we visit every weekend. And she didn't understand. She doesn't understand pandemic. She doesn't understand COVID-19. All she knew was that all of a sudden, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa were not visiting. And we tried to get her to use Facebook Messenger and Zoom. And these changes were very difficult for her. She doesn't really like to talk on the phone. She has her routine when we come and visit. She likes to go to Walmart and buy the food that she loves to have for the week. And then she likes to go eat in the diner. And all of a sudden, that was That was no longer available to her, and she didn't understand why. And that's also been challenging for many of our family members. Similarly, adults who live in group homes, many of them were closed because of staff. And those individuals had to move back home, which was incredibly disruptive. They could no longer go to work. They could no longer go to their day programs. So I think it's been very challenging. Plus, I'll add that... Many of our our family members with autism have tremendous sensory issues. So getting them to wear a mask was really a challenge 
So yeah, I do I do think our our family members were disproportionately affected, but we have really pivoted a lot of the work that we do at the Autism Science Foundation to develop webinars to help families cope. We did a webinar helping families understand how to use principles of applied behavior analysis, which is a very popular autism therapy, to get their kids to wear a mask. We did webinars on how to how to prepare your child to see their doctor on Zoom, to see their teacher on Zoom. We invested in new technology, a new robot technology where the the robot is in the room with the child with autism while they're receiving therapy over Zoom, but the therapist can control the robot in real time over Zoom. So it helps the child to stay on task while they're receiving their virtual therapy. So it's definitely been a challenge, but I think we've risen to that challenge and we've really tried to address the changing needs of our families. What about the changing needs of researchers? That too. All of a sudden, universities were shuttered and research shut down. We uh, Similarly, we did a series of webinars for scientists to help them to move their studies online, to help clinicians learn to do diagnosis online. You know, that had never been done before. It's actually interesting because we had been pushing for that to start you know, there were all, all manner of problems, HIPAA problems, this problem, that problem. But suddenly when the world shut down, this was the only option. So we were able to really move forward with that. And it's it's actually been very illustrative. We've learned a lot. We've learned things that I think we will continue to do even when the pandemic is over. So for example, the diagnosing a child over Zoom in their home allows the clinician to see the child in their home environment where often they behave differently than kids behave when they come to the clinic. We've been hearing that from parents for years. You know, I took them to be diagnosed and he didn't really show all the behaviors he shows at home. And so I don't think the clinician got a good a good sense. Well, now the clinicians are able to get a better sense because they can see the kids in their home environment. So that's sort of a surprising benefit that we'll move forward with. But yeah, we worked with scientists to help them move studies online. In some cases, we had to purchase PPE for families who could go to the clinic to participate in research, but for whom no PPE was provided by other granting organizations. So, you know, that just seemed ridiculous. So, of course, we provided PPE. But things like that where we absolutely had to pivot what we were doing to support the very, the changing and very different needs of scientists during the pandemic. You mentioned earlier that you have your annual Day of Learning event, which I know is coming up pretty soon. And I'm going to let you talk about exactly what the Day of Learning is. And it seems like you are also incorporating some of the lessons learned during the pandemic into the Day of Learning. So I'm hoping you can talk about the Day of Learning as a whole and that aspect specifically. Well, our goal every year with our days of learning is to focus on the topics that are of greatest interest to our families and to scientists. And so this year, a lot of that will be related to COVID-19. So we do the day of learning in TED style. They're very short presentations followed by Q&A. And when we first asked scientists, you know, I think eight years ago when we launched this, to give a 12-minute presentation, they're like, I can't possibly present my research in less than an hour. And I can't possibly have fewer than 50 slides. And we were like, try. And sure enough, they're able to do it. And it's great. They really just get to the heart of the matter 
and share the, my husband likes to call it the so what, and share the key learnings with our families in a way that's very, very accessible. So this year we'll have talks on how COVID-19 has affected our families stress-wise. We'll be looking at how online assessment, as I was mentioning earlier, how online assessment has changed as a result of the pandemic. We'll be looking at issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and the scientific workforce. We'll be looking at the relationship and new scientific data, looking at the relationship between seizures and autism. And also we'll be getting an update on the medical marijuana trials in children with autism. So these are the topics that are of interest to the community. These are the topics that come up on social media and that people write to us and say, we would like to hear about this. And so that's really where we focus. Uh, A lot of parents attend this event. Young scientists attend this event. Older scientists attend this event because they say it's a great way to keep up with the breadth of what's happening in the autism community, not just their narrow area of, of scientific inquiry where, that they focus on. So, and again, another positive of the pandemic is we're able to reach so many more people. When we held the events in New York or in San Francisco, the room would hold about 350 people. But our last day of learning, we had over 900 people register and watch it online. One silver lining is that we're able to reach more people and share this information more broadly. Well, I'm glad there have been some silver linings. And if anyone is interested to attend the Day of Learning, when is it and how can they register? It's on April 22nd. The tickets are free and they can go to autismsciencefoundation.org and register for free tickets. Well, thank you for all that. Allison Singer, we really appreciate your time today. It was really valuable to learn more about the Autism Science Foundation and the important work that your team is doing. So thank you for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Allison Singer, for being here today. Thank you to everyone who listened. If you would like to learn more about the Autism Science Foundation, or to make a donation, you can check the show notes. You can also visit www.autismsciencefoundation.org.